Um, I would like, uh, before we get started, to uh, invite all of the guys to a uh, morning doctrinal study that I'm going to lead. Uh, it begins on uh, Tuesday, October 23rd, and it will run on Tuesday mornings. It's going to be from 6.30. I hope that's early enough for some of you guys. For me, that's dreadful. But I know a lot of you guys got to be at work at like 9 or 8.30 or something like that or whatever, so I wanted to run it early. But it's going to run from 6.30 to uh, 7.45 a.m. And uh, we're going to be looking at a, uh, a doctrinal book together and just sort of dissecting the chapters and discussing it. And I think it's going to be really, really awesome. I think it's going to be really, really cool. Uh, there is a cost in it because uh, we've got to order books and we want each guy to have a book. And so the cost is about 15 bucks. You get your own copy. And, uh, and what we'll do is you'll read like the section that we mark out that week and then we'll discuss it on, on Tuesday mornings. But I think it's going to be really, really awesome. Um, I, I believe that doctrine brings unity. It doesn't bring disunity, as some seem to proclaim today. And uh, being that we're in a, uh, a, the time, I think, of the greatest and deepest form of biblical ignorance, it's really, really good to study doctrine, to know doctrine, to understand doctrine, and uh, to, to work through those, through those things together. So I'm very excited about it. I'm not excited about the early morning, but I am excited about spending time with, with some of the men of RHC. So make sure that you get signed up out on the uh, info table. There's one of these things. Just put your name and phone number on there. And it's, it's just a few weeks away, but I want to encourage you guys. Now, wives, there's a handful of you in here. Make your husbands go to this thing. Seriously. Your husband's the priest of the home. He needs to understand the doctrines of the Bible, and uh, it'll be good for him. So, so put, put the clamp on these guys and, and have them come down here and do that. Okay? Sound good? All right. The text that I, I would like to call your attention to this morning is Acts 7, 51 to 53, is what we'll be looking at. Acts 7, 51 to 53. We will be studying, as you turn there, we will be studying the last little tidbit, little section of Stephen's Stephen's. It's going to be one of those mornings. And I, had, I had coffee. Um, we're going to be studying his, the last little chunk of his great sermon or speech or apologetic or whatever you want to call it. And I'm kind of sad that we're, we're basically going to be wrapping up with chapter 7 soon, more particularly his sermon. It's been really challenging for me, probably, in all honesty, probably one of the most difficult sections of Scripture that I've ever studied and had to teach through. And, uh, and uh, I think that's primarily because of all the Old Testament study that had to go into it, because that's primarily what his sermon is. But, but it's been a fascinating study for me. It's been very difficult, and it's been very challenging, and uh, it's been hard. You know, do you ever just study the Word of God and, and it's just difficult at times? You know, you find yourself face to face with truth and, and you know that you don't have truth in you and that you want to repel the truth and, and uh, it's, just, it's just a tough thing at times. It seems like the church has made studying God's Word so easy today and, and yet sometimes when we read it and study it, it's like, wow, it just, it just jacks us up. So it's been really challenging, but it's been good for me. And uh, so I'm kind of bummed. We're going to be wrapping it up soon. Now, so far, for those of you who have been with us, and that's, I would say, the majority of you have been with us through this study. So far, Stephen has done a pretty, I'd, I'd say he's done a pretty extraordinary job of defending himself against the false allegations that were made against him by false witnesses, these synagogue men and these people that they stirred up and brought uh, with them and him into the Sanhedrin. He's done a pretty good job of defending himself against the alleged crime of blasphemy against God and blasphemy against Moses, blasphemy against the law, blasphemy against the temple. He's done a pretty good job of showing that he loves, honors, and respects God, that he honors Moses, that he understands the law that he understands the significance of the temple and all these things. So he's done a really, really spectacular job of, of proving them wrong. And at the same time, he has reminded the Sanhedrin of 
really some of Israel's more spectacular sins. And this is kind of the way that he's shown his respect for God in all of these things. He's done it through this sort of narration of Israel's history. And he's pointed out some of Israel's more spectacular sins, things like the betrayal of Joseph and the rejection of Moses, rejection of the law, uh, the golden calf, which um, is probably Israel's uh, most infamous act of disobedience against God. Uh, He's shown how they worshipped these planetary beings, you know, these planetary gods while they were in the wilderness and how they came into the temple to worship God, but their hearts weren't right. Their hearts were turned towards these planetary gods, so they were offering all this worship to these planetary gods while going through the motions of offering them uh, uh, to the one true God. He's shown all these things through this narration. Um, Although he is the one uh, that is on trial, Stephen has been building an extremely rock-solid sound case against his audience. And what we'll see today is that he's about to drive home his main point. It's like everything that he's been narrating and reminding them of has been leading to this little section of Scripture that we're going to look at. It's kind of like the crescendo or something of that nature. Uh, I'd like to read it and then examine it with you and apply it to our own lives together. Make sure you're over at Acts 7, 51 to 53. I'll read it aloud. We'll pray one more time and then we'll take a look at it. Stephen said, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did So do you. Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. He says, you who received the law as delivered by angels did not keep it. Father, as we begin to study your word, God... I pray that we would have open minds, open hearts, open ears to receive your truth. As I said earlier, Lord, that's not a natural thing for us. It's not a natural inclination, even though many of us have been regenerated and made new and given new life, probably all of us here, there is still a strong propensity within us to Uh, deny the truth, to hide from it, to reject it, to oppose it. And so we need your help, Lord. And uh, God, I pray that you would take this truth and apply it to our hearts, to our minds, to our lives, God. May we not be mere hearers of the truth, listening to sermons over and over and over and over and all of these other things, God. May we be doers of the word. Uh, And may our action be out of a response of great love and gratitude to you and for what you've done for us. May love for you be our motivator uh, for how we respond because we realize the great things that you have accomplished in our steed, impossible things. And so, Lord, have your way here today. Guide my tongue and my lips, my mind, my heart. Uh, I am a sinner, Lord, and um, it is not hard for me to become distracted and to teach falsity or whatever these things are. Humble us now and receive these things as an offering of praise to you. We love you and we pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Let's take a look at it together. We're going to look at the first part of verse 51. Stephen after giving them this historical lesson and and saying all of these things and pointing out all of these past errors and in many ways in a kind of a subversive manner of kind of paralleling them with their current actions, he comes right out of the gate and says this to them. This is where the rubber really meets the road in his speech. He says, you stiff-necked people, uncircumcised in heart and ears. What 
did he mean by these things, these descriptors, these little phrases and things? What does it mean, first of all, to start, we'll start with stiff-necked. When I read that, I was a little perplexed. I thought, man, what does this mean? So I began to do a little investigation. And here are some synonyms that, that are used to describe this. Obstinate, headstrong, intractable, mullish. Have you ever heard of that word? Mullish, not, not mullet. Mullish, uh, pertinacious, pig-headed. I'm sure some of you husbands have been called that by your wife. Refractory, self-willed, willful. Uh, and another one would be unyielding. These are some pretty negative words, right? I mean, these aren't, there's nothing positive about any of these things, man. They're, they're pretty negative. Now, Stephen pulled this, uh, I guess we could classify it as a derogatory term. He pulled it from Exodus 32.9. While the Israelites were worshiping the golden calf and engaged in lustful hedonism, God said this to Moses as he looked down from the mountain upon his people. He said, I have seen this people, and behold, it is a stiff-necked people. Now, in context, the Israelites had been instructed to wait patiently for Moses to return from Mount Sinai, but they grew impatient and then threw out God's instructions, and most of us have read the story, and they began to do things their own way. What did they do? They had Aaron fashion a god out of all their jewelry, and they, you know, they began to engage in things that they were used to, that they were comfortable with, things that they had learned in Egypt. Bottom line, they began to do things their own way. And isn't that true of how we are when we're impatient? We're waiting and waiting and waiting, and then we begin to try to orchestrate, try to plan, try to take action. I can't think of a single time where I've done something like that where it's actually paid off, you know. There's a great parallel there for us, but while they're in the midst of this taking things upon themselves and fashioning their own God and making all these plans and wanting to do things their own way, God looks upon them and calls them stiff-necked. Children tend to be stiff-necked. Now, we don't call them that because we love little Jimmy so much. He's so precious. I'd never call my darling angel that, right? You're not going to just look at your kid and call him stiff-necked. I guess you might call him pig-headed behind his back. But we don't tend to view our children that way, right? We, we, we'll see them in their, you know, their self-will and, and that type of action, but we don't typically call them that. No, what we call them is strong-willed. Now, in the eyes of the world, to be strong-willed is, is a plus, especially in terms or in industries like management and business and these things. And I can't tell you how many parents, you know, have come into my office when I was at Big Valley and I'd be counseling them and their child, and he's just so strong-willed, but I know someday that's going to really pay off. Well, that's absolutely not true. The Bible condemns such behavior. God condemn such a behavior, um, strong-willed might be a quality uh, to the world, but it is not a quality to God. It is not something that is good. It is not good or beneficial at all. The Bible actually shows that there is no value in being strong-willed or stiff-necked, especially in spiritual terms. Like stiff-necked little children, the Israelites rejected their leaders and God and turned to their own ways. Isn't that what little kids do at times? You tell them to do something, they refute you, and that they go about doing things their own way. That's what is playing out in that Exodus narrative. Now, Stephen's listeners were guilty of this just as their forefathers had been guilty of it. They rejected their leader. I'm talking about Stephen's audience. They rejected their leader, Jesus, and turned to their own ways. They rejected their Messiah and relied on their own works and goodness. Stephen called them stiff-necked for doing so. That's the great parallel that's there. 
So being stiff-necked is not a good quality. God calls us to be humble, which is the antithesis of that. Now let's talk about uncircumcised in heart. There are essentially two forms of circumcision in the Bible. There is the circumcision of the flesh and there is the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the flesh was this outward symbol of belonging to God's covenant family. It was the visible or physical symbol, if you will. Um, most of us know how it played out, but when Jewish parents had their you know, babies, their male babies, they would have them circumcised on the eighth day, and what they were doing was they were dedicating and devoting these children. First of all, they were obeying God's law, but they were also dedicating these children, their children, to the Lord, and they were vowing to raise their children in accordance with God's law and to teach them uh, to know God, to love God, and to serve God. You can see that in Genesis 17, 9 to 13. Those who were not circumcised in the flesh, okay, physically, were known as outsiders, okay? Now, God's requirement was for when the Israelites had servants and people that were Gentiles, non-Jews, people that were outside of the nation, their requirement was to circumcise them as well. So they would be, that would symbolize that they were part of God's covenant family as well. So you had this physical circumcision. And then you have what's called the circumcision of the heart. Circumcision of the heart was the inward symbol of belonging to God's covenant family. It was the spiritual symbol, if you will. A heart that is circumcised is a heart that has been changed by God's grace grace, and changed by God's truth, by the truth of Scripture. Circumcision of heart uh, would happen sort of later on as the you know, baby grew up into a child and began to mature, this uh, transformation of the heart, the circumcision of the heart would begin to happen as this child began to comprehend the truths of God and and who this child was and as a sinner in these things. The circumcision of the heart would begin to happen as he realized his great need for God's mercy, forgiveness, and deliverance. So you have kind of these two forms of circumcision. Now in the Old Testament, And we don't often think of this or understand this, but both forms of circumcision were required for an individual to be a part of God's true covenant family. One had to be circumcised in the flesh and circumcised in the heart. You know, they had to have the outward sign and the inward sign of faith. Okay, so it was absolutely required. Now, sadly, many... Israelites and people exhibited the outward sign only. Their bodies had been modified, but their hearts remained the same, unregenerate, because they chose to rely on their own self-righteousness and works. That's kind of how it played out. Now, Deuteronomy 10.16 alludes to this, and I know Stephen has this in his mind, Stephen, when he says what he says, he uses Scripture as the foundation. He doesn't just come up with things and say things. And so this passage has to be ringing in his mind as he's saying these things, calling them this. It says, Circumcise, therefore, the foreskin of your heart, and be no longer stubborn. What was Moses saying there? Okay, you people have the physical manifestation. You have the physical circumcision. But your hearts are unchanged, which means that you're not in God's covenant family. The outward sign isn't enough. Humble yourself, recognize your sin, repent of it, trust in the coming Messiah, obey God, live in his power and strength, so on and so forth, what Moses was saying. Now, there's also the circumcision of the ears Circumcision of the ears is not a requisite. It's not requisite or it's not a stipulation for covenant relationship with God. It is an expression used to describe a person's unwillingness or inability to listen. Now, remember, circumcision is the removal of flesh. The idea here uh, then becomes that a person who has uncircumcised ears has like a layer of flesh over their ears which prohibits them from hearing. 
People have like this invisible thing. They're incapable of listening. Their ears are stopped. They're plugged. They don't want to hear it. That's what he's sort of referencing or that's what he means. Now, Jeremiah 6.10, this is what he would have had in mind when he said this. And these are all chain link reference to this passage. If you look in a study Bible, you see the little letters. And these are the verses that you're pointed to because that's where they're coming from. Jeremiah 6.10, to whom shall I speak and give warning that they may hear? Behold, their ears are uncircumcised. They cannot listen. Behold, the word of the Lord is to them an object of scorn. They take no pleasure in it. Now, incredibly, we're not going to get there today, but if you look briefly at verse 57 of our chapter, it shows the incredible accuracy of Stephen's words. Because it says that his audience stopped their ears because they did not want to hear the truth any longer. What he said actually came true right in his very presence. He's preaching gospel truth. He's calling these men on their sin, calling them uh, to repent. And what do they do? You've ever seen Dumb and Dumber? Ah, la, 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 la. You know, they're, they're covering their ears. They don't want to hear it any longer. What does this symbolize? uncircumcision of the ears. Very interesting. Now let's just do a brief recap. Stephen called them stiff-necked. Translation, you are obstinate, self-willed, self-reliant, and unyielding. Okay, what he said had massive force behind it. He had just said this to the most religious men probably in all of the world church three times a day, held the highest positions, gave more than anyone else. These guys were 72 popes, okay? These guys were the highest of the highest, and he says this to them. This would have had just massive impact on them. You are obstinate, self-willed, self-reliant, and unyielding, basically just like your forefathers were is what he says. Stephen called them uncircumcised in heart, right? We just talked about that. Translation, now this is where it gets real heavy. You are unchanged. You are unregenerate, you are faithless, and guess what? You are non-covenant people. What must they be to be covenant people? Circumcised in flesh, all of them were. Circumcised in heart, probably none of them were. He just told them you are not Israelites. You are not true Jews. You are not from Abraham. What did Jesus tell them through his gospel? He said, you are not the children of Abraham. Why? Because they did not have uncircumcised hearts. Their hearts were rotten, of stone, unchanged, untransformed because of their own self-will and desire and false religion and these things. Imagine calling, I think it was 71 members if if I'm not mistaken, but imagine calling the the most religious guys. They've got the garb on, they're going through all the functions and motions, they're governing the religious affairs, the the temple and all this, and calling them non-covenant people. You're outsiders. You're like an Ammonite. You're like a Canaanite, is what he's saying. This is devastating. Stephen called them uncircumcised in ears. Translation, you have an inability to listen to God's reproof. You will not receive his truth. Your ears are covered. You will not listen. You cannot listen. You do not want to listen, just as your forefathers were unwilling to listen. Combined, this was the grandest of insults. The grandest. You could not, Keener said, he's a guy I study, he said, Stephen could not have chosen harder words, harsher words. This was the grandest of all insults. After calling them what they were, They were these things. They were stiff-necked and uncircumcised in those couple of different ways. After calling them what they were, after identifying them as that, he showed them, ultimately he showed them their crime. This is what he's been building up to. This is what his entire sermon has been leading to, to where we're going now. He recited Israel's history and errors so that he could get his listeners, his audience to this point. It all boils down to where we're at now. Let's look at the rest of 51. 
uh, and then we'll look through 53. He says, you're stiff-necked, you're uncircumcised in your hearts, you're uncircumcised in your ears, and then he says, you're just like your forefathers, then he says this, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. Which of the prophets, and he adds to it, which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. 5.3, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. Stephen begins by saying, you always resist the Holy Spirit as your fathers did, so do you. We must understand the role of the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit is the revealer of truth. He is the one that does that miraculous work of giving people the ability to comprehend, understand, absorb, and apply God's truth. Without him, none of these things are possible. Stephen said, you always resist him. Resist is antipipto in Greek, and it means to oppose. Stephen said, you always oppose God. When they're forefathers opposed Joseph and Moses. They opposed the Holy Spirit who is God because he was in these men. These men were led and guided by the Holy Spirit. The Holy Spirit spoke through them. Think of Moses when he gave the Israelites the law. It was the Holy Spirit who is God who was speaking through him. No man could recite these things on his own or even comprehend these things. When the Israelites rejected the law, when they rejected their leaders who were filled with the Holy Spirit, filled with God, trying to be led by God, they rejected God. They rejected the one who gave them these ordinances, these instructions, this call to repentance, and all these things that took place. They opposed the Holy Spirit, which means they opposed God. Again, we're talking to, he's presenting this to the most religious men around who in their minds are controlled by the Holy Spirit and doing exactly what they believe the Holy Spirit wants them to do. I mean, this is just, this is an assault. This is a verbal assault. It's a verbal beating. He's trashing them. He's gone UFC. He's about to throw them in a rear naked choke and take them out. I mean, he is, he's just, this is a salvo, you know, much like the salvo that Jesus launches against the scribes in Matthew 23. Woe to you, O scribe. When you go out and convert somebody, you make them twice the son of hell as yourself. Remember those harsh words? Oh, Jesus always said all these real nice things. He was always this little gentle, like a puppy, you know. Are you kidding me? Some of the things that he said were just absolutely devastating. Stephen is, is doing that here. He is, he is doing that. He says, you always oppose God. Opposition to the Holy Spirit, to his revelation, to his leading, to his ministry is a direct opposition to God. The Holy Spirit is God, the third person of the Holy Trinity. Moving on, he gives them two more examples of how their forefathers opposed the Holy Spirit. Stephen said, what? Which of the prophets did your fathers not persecute? He asks them a question. Israel had a long history of persecuting her prophets. Every time God sent a Holy Spirit-filled man to direct the nation back to holiness, the people came against them hard. Men like Jeremiah and Ezekiel, both men warned the nation about her idolatry, warned the nation about the consequences, which was to be a Babylonian invasion. Did the people listen to them? No, no, no. They persecuted them. In fact, they took Jeremiah and threw him in a muddy well and tried to starve him to death. Listen to these Old Testament passages that are linked to Stephen's words here. 1 Kings 19.10, Elijah said, For the people of Israel have forsaken your covenant. 
thrown down your altars and killed your prophets with the sword. And I, even I only, am left and they seek my life to take it away. 2 Chronicles 36.16 The Lord, the God of their fathers, sent persistently to them by his messengers because he had compassion on his people and on his dwelling place. But they kept mocking the messengers of God, despising his words and scoffing at his prophets until the wrath of the Lord rose against his people until there was no remedy. Jeremiah 2, 29-30. Why do you contend with me? You have all transgressed against me, declares the Lord. In vain have I struck your children. They took no correction. Your own sword devoured your prophets like a ravening lion. If Stephen's audience, his listeners, the Sanhedrin were to answer his question truthfully, the answer would be none because their forefathers persecuted all of their prophets in some way, shape, or form. He takes it further. He said, And they killed those who announced beforehand the coming of the righteous one, righteous one being Jesus Stephen reminds them of how their fathers treated the prophets that were sent to announce the coming of God's promised Messiah. He essentially said this, paraphrased, And how did your fathers deal with the prophets who announced the coming Messiah, the righteous one? They killed them. Immediately, Isaiah comes to mind, for me at least. Isaiah was a prophet during the reigns of Uzziah and Jotham and Ahaz and Hezekiah, the kings of Judah. Isaiah not only announced that the Messiah was coming, but he gave incredible details about the Messiah, more than any other prophet. Isaiah said this about the Messiahs, the coming Messiahs, probably 800 or so years later after Isaiah. He said this about his social status and appearance. These are going to sound familiar because Mike read most of them. Isaiah 53, 2, for he grew up before him like a young plant and like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He's speaking of the Messiah, that he would be very normal in his appearance, that he would come from a regular Jewish family. Isaiah said that he would be rejected. 53.3, he was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief. And as one from whom men hide their faces, he was despised and we esteemed him not. Isaiah said that he would not defend himself. Isaiah 53.7, he was oppressed and he was afflicted, yet he opened not his mouth like a lamb that is led to the slaughter, and like a sheep that before its shearers is silent, so he opened not his mouth. Isaiah said that he would be beaten beyond recognition. 52.14, one uh, Mike didn't cover earlier, he read 53. It says, and as many were astonished at you, his appearance was so marred beyond human semblance and his form beyond that of the children of mankind. Many of us have read the end of the Gospels account and have seen how Jesus was beaten to an absolute pulp, beard plucked out, face punched and kicked and beaten, hair and just, he was a mess. He was, his face was beyond recognition. Isaiah said that he would be Uh, beaten beyond recognition. Isaiah said that he would be executed next to lawbreakers. Isaiah 53, 12, it says he was numbered with the transgressors. Well, who was he executed in between? Common transgressors, thieves, robbers, murderers, whatever those two men were. Was he not nailed to a cross in the same fashion as common criminals? He absolutely was. 
Isaiah said that he would bear the sins of his people. 53.12, it says, yet he bore the sin of many and makes intercession for the transgressors. Isaiah said that crucifixion would be his means of death. Wow, what a detail. 53.5 says, but he was what? Pierced for our transgressions. Those nails were driven through his limbs. He was even stabbed with a sword. It says he was crushed for our iniquities. Lastly, Isaiah said that he would be buried in a rich man's tomb. How fascinating is that? 53.9. And they made his grave with the wicked and with a rich man in his death. Whose tomb was he buried in? Joseph of what? Arimathea is a wealthy man. Out of all the prophets that had come, Isaiah uh, was definitely the most descriptive about the Messiah, although many other men had proclaimed that he was coming, and all prophets essentially pointed to him. Now, after King Hezekiah died, his son Manasseh, whom he may have shared his throne with, Manasseh may have been a co-regent with him. When he died, when Hezekiah died, his son took full control. Manasseh very quickly reversed the reforms that his father had made, and he reintroduced his kingdom to idolatry and pagan worship. He put up a carved image of Asherah, the Canaanite sex goddess, in the temple. He burned his own son on the altar of Baal. He held seances and worshipped cosmic powers and took direction from the consolations and he even consulted the dead. Those men were called necromancers. 2 Kings 21.9 says that King Manasseh caused the Israelites to become more wicked than all the nations that they had destroyed previously and dispossessed. During his reign, the Israelites became far more wicked than any Canaanite had ever become or anything else. Unbelievable. Now God was infuriated and God warned that he would bring a level of destruction upon Jerusalem and Judah like never before. In fact, the prophetic word of God says the news of what was coming would literally cause the hair on people's necks to tingle and twinge. So God sent these prophets to warn them Men like Isaiah. Isaiah railed against Manasseh, condemning his behavior and warning against impending doom and judgment. Now, according to the Babylonian Talmud and the Jerusalem Talmud, Manasseh went after Isaiah. At some point, he seized him and had him placed inside of a hollowed-out tree and then had Servants cut the tree and him in half. Hebrews 11.37 seems to affirm this. This is one example of how Stephen's listeners' forefathers murdered a prophet who had proclaimed the coming of the Messiah, the righteous one. Now Stephen then makes an amazing statement And this is where he really goes all in. He's going for the gusto. Again, he said, your fathers killed the prophets of the righteous one. And then he adds, but you yourselves betrayed and murdered the righteous one. He said it. This way, whom you have now betrayed and murdered. Stephen's listeners were the guys behind Jesus' arrest, trial, and crucifixion. Jesus' blood was on their hands, on their heads. They were guilty of betraying and murdering the Lord. Through his Sermon, Stephen has been building up to this point. He has shown how the people of Israel opposed their God-given leaders and how they persecuted and murdered their God-given prophets. He ends his speech with the ultimate and most devastating example of Israel's opposition to God, the betrayal and murder of their God-given Messiah, Jesus Christ. 
But Stephen doesn't leave them there. He makes one final statement that he hopes will lead his audience to repentance. He said, you who received the law as delivered by angels and did not keep it. He is referring to the Ten Commandments. We had covered that weeks ago when we talked about the burning bush and the Sinai experience and how God gave Moses the law and he came down with it. And What is the purpose of the Ten Commandments? The purpose of the Ten Commandments is to show people that they come short of God's standard of righteousness. The first four commandments show how we are to honor, love, and respect God. The last six commandments show how we are to honor, love, and respect others. When a person gazes upon the commandments, they quickly realize that they have fallen dramatically short of what is required of them. The Bible teaches that God is just and that he will, he will bring justice upon all who have broken his holy law. And this includes everyone, all people. The Bible says that all people like sheep have gone astray. It says that no one is righteous, not one. So according to the law, according to the commandments, all people stand condemned and are in peril. But God, being the God of love and the God of mercy and grace, devised a plan in eternity past to send a deliverer. One who would be perfect in every conceivable way. One who would come and obey the law fully and satisfy the Father's expectation of righteousness. One who would come and die a vicarious death in our place on Calvary's cross. One who would transfer His perfect righteousness to our account and take our sins upon His body to the highest point in which the Father had to forsake Him. He could not look upon Him. No one could. To be as gruesome as He was, as He bore all of our sins and the sins of millions and millions of people. What a horrendous sight He must have been to the Father. Perfect Son. One who would be buried in a tomb three days later rise by the very power of God Almighty conquering sin death and Satan this is the one whom Stephen called the righteous one the one in whom the apostle Peter called the author of life I'm speaking of Jesus he is the one that accomplished these things Where Adam failed, Jesus succeeded. Now since perfect obedience to the law is required and yet impossible for fallen sinners to achieve, they must turn to the alternative. Jesus Christ. The law is a sign that shows us our imperfection and unrighteousness. The cross is a sign that shows us the alternative. Jesus Christ, who obeyed the law perfectly and died on the cross in our place. Romans 10.4 puts it so well. It says, for Christ is the end of the law for righteousness to everyone who believes. Through Christ, the condemnation that the law brings is eradicated. Immediately after telling the Sanhedrin that they betrayed, that they murdered the righteous one, Stephen tells them that they broke God's law. Which commandment do you think he had in mind? 
probably all of them, but we know for sure that he had commandment six, thou shall not kill. What they had done to Jesus was unjust. There was no justification for their murder of him. They had broken God's law. What else had they done? They turned the land, the temple, their circumcision, all of these things that God had given them through his incredible provision into idols that they worshipped. What is the first commandment? No other gods but me. These men were guilty. They were guilty. After reminding Israel of her past errors, or after reminding these men of Israel's past errors, he points out their current errors. After calling out the Sanhedrin, saying what they were, stiff-necked, uncircumcised in heart and ear, after telling them that they betrayed and murdered the righteous one, Stephen ties it all together and essentially says, you are the ones guilty because you have broken God's law which was entrusted to you. I'm no lawbreaker. You think that I committed blasphemy against God, Moses, the law, the temple? You have. And I have shown you through a historical survey of how all your fathers that preceded you, all of the leaders and all that did it, and I'm showing you right now through how you handled and treated Jesus, what you did to him, how you've done just like them. You're no different from them. You're the ones that are guilty. Now the Sanhedrin was left with two options. One, and I truly believe this is the one that Stephen wanted for them. They could repent of their sin and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior and as their only hope for deliverance from breaking God's laws. That is what Stephen wanted. Oh, he said things with such ferocity and force. But this is a man who's been redeemed by a gracious God and saved. So his heart is a heart of love, even when he says hard truth. He didn't have to point them to the commandments that they broke. He could have just left them with their crime. But he gives them an option. They could repent of their sin and receive Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, the one that he's been proclaiming over and over in the synagogues, the one that Peter and the apostles have been proclaiming over and over in Solomon's portico and throughout all of the land, the one we've been talking about, this Jesus of Nazareth, to receive that Jesus as Lord and Savior and as their only hope for deliverance from breaking God's law. Or... They could reject Stephen's message. They could reject the truth and continue in their opposition to God, continue in their idolatry, and continue down the path of destruction. Incredibly, 2,000 years later, we're faced with the same decision, are we not? You've heard the gospel. I mean, isn't, in a way, the world just one big Sanhedrin filled with all sorts of religious people? Well, I'm an atheist. I'm not religious. You're more religious than any Christian I've ever known if you're an atheist. You've got to build a system of, of science and all of these things, and it's unbelievable what you have to orchestrate and put together to remain in a state of atheism. Isn't the world just one big Sanhedrin, one big melting pot of different philosophies and ideas and works righteousness and attitudes of we'll do it our way and God will have to honor that when we come before him, if he exists? You see, the world is one big Sanhedrin. 
or one big Israel? Is it not? What makes us any different from the Israelites? Oh, we're better than them. Are you kidding me? We're all idolaters. We've all broken God's law. Just look at the Ten Commandments. Have you ever lied? Hello? Oh, everyone stands condemned. The great question for us this morning is the same thing that Stephen put out to his listeners. You're lawbreakers. You have two choices. Repent of your sin. Place your faith and trust in Jesus Christ. He's your only hope. He's your own, only deliverer. The only one that God sent to this world. Let him deliver you from your sin. Let him make you new, a new creation. Repent, turn to him. Or reject God's truth. Stay on that path. Remain as Israel's forefathers did and as the Sanhedrin did, as we'll see in the coming weeks. Many of us have yielded. We were stiff-necked at one time, I guess. We yielded to Christ. And glory be to him for that. That's his work. Isn't it wonderful to be saved by him and filled with the Holy Spirit changed by him and in relationship with him. And I wonder if there's just someone here maybe today that, that hasn't experienced that. Well, you know what to do. Turn from your sin. Place your faith and trust in Jesus. Or continue on that path. I would say that I'm Nowhere near as talented as Stephen or as bold. <laughs> kind of a coward, to be honest with you. But as a pastor, my desire is that you'd know the Lord. Not just so that you could spend an eternity with God, but that you may have the abundant life that he has for you now. Because salvation is now. It just doesn't happen and kick in when you breathe your last breath. It's a life that you live now. And it is the most spectacular, satisfying, purposeful life that you will ever have. Nothing else can bring it. 